Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This week's message, Victorious Over Sin, Romans chapter 6. You know, my wife Christy and I have been married for 33 years. That's been plenty of time for me to mess up. I mean, really mess up. And when I do make mistakes, I've learned to apologize and ask my wife to forgive me. Sometimes it takes me a bit to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and recognize that I need to. Of course, she forgives me, but there's much more to it than that. She wants more than an apology. She wants my assurance that I'm not going to repeat the stupid thing I did in the first place. She wants repentance. Now, that term repentance literally means to make an about face. Repentance is that U-turn in life when you realize you're headed in the wrong direction and you turn around to head back in the direction you should be going. Well, the Christian life is a life of repentance, but that repentance is so much more than just feeling sorry for what we've done. Seeking forgiveness is only the beginning. But forgiveness for what? Well, sin. What is sin? Well, anything we do that's contrary to God's will. It's disobedience of God, the things that we do that displease Him. And it's what Christ came to save us from. Well, you see, Jesus Christ has far more in store for Christians than just a repeating cycle of failure and apology, followed by more failure and more apology. Christ gives us more than just forgiveness for sin. He gives us the power to become victorious over sin. So today we're in Romans, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome to present his basic statement of the gospel. It's God's plan of salvation for all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike. But the overall theme of chapter 6 is that we are under new management in Christ. And in this portion of chapter 6 we're studying today, Paul relates what Christ has done for us in his atoning death and resurrection with what believers are then to do, prevent sin from reigning over them, and then to live their lives for God. What believers are in position, they are to become in practice. They go from being positionally righteous in Christ to being practically righteous through Christ. And really the big idea for this week's study is this. Very simply, sin is no longer my master. Jesus is. Now, there are three aspects of a believer's life in Christ that Paul brings out in our text. Number one is this. A believer is dead to sin's slavery. Look at verse 4 there. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. 
Well, to make his point, Paul uses the picture of baptism. Now, historians agree that the mode of baptism in the early church was immersion. The believer was buried in the water and brought up again as a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. And it not only pictures the believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, but it's a picture of our own lives. It's an outward symbol of an inward change. So, if baptism is a picture of our new life in Christ, what's the picture of our old lives before Christ? Well, it's slavery to sin. We see that in verse 6. It's being chained to the power of sin over us, probably without even knowing it. It's being spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul said in Ephesians 2. It's uh, condemned to the punishment of sin, which is death. Now, what Paul is saying here in verses 6 and 7 means that the believer has a new relationship to sin. He is dead to sin. Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20 that I am crucified with Christ. So think of it this way. If an alcoholic dies, he's no longer tempted by alcohol because his body is dead to all physical senses. He can't see the alcohol, smell the alcohol, taste it, or desire it. Well, in Jesus Christ, we've died to sin so that we no longer want to continue in sin. As the late Adrian Rogers would say, God has changed our wanter. But you see, we're not simply dead to sin. We're now alive in Christ, too. We've been raised from the dead and now walk in the power of his resurrection. We walk in newness of life because we share his life. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Galatians 2.20. Now, know what Paul says in, in verse 6. He says, our old self was crucified. All that the old self ever stood for, all that stuff we were, all the stuff that we did before our conversion has been defeated. Past tense. Done deal. The decisive end of the old self. It was not just part of our old nature that was crucified with Christ. It was our complete old self. All of it. In verse 6, Paul also says that our old self was crucified so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. Now, that word in the Greek for powerless, katargeo, in the context of verse 6, it means to bring to an end, to abolish, nullify, destroy. But what's really interesting to me is that the same Greek word is translated as released. In Romans chapter 7, verse 2, where Paul states that if a woman's husband dies, she is released from being legally bound to her husband and is free to marry again. So there's a change in relationship. The legal status no longer has authority over the woman because her husband has passed. Well, it's the same with us. Sin has no authority over us because our old self is dead and the new self now exists. London businessman Lindsay Clegg had a warehouse property he was selling. The building had been empty for months and needed repairs. Well, vandals had damaged the doors, smashed the windows, and strewn trash around the interior. And as he showed a prospective buyer the property, Clegg took pains to say that he would replace the broken windows, bring in a crew to correct any structural damage, and clean out the garbage. Now, forget about the repairs, the buyer said. When I buy this place, 
I'm going to build something completely different. I don't want the building. I want the site. You see, believer, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Jesus Christ bought you with his precious blood. Jesus paid the price for your sin, and he plans to take a wrecking ball to the old you and to do the ultimate renovation job to create the new you. When we become gods, the old life is over. We are a new creation. He makes all things new. All he wants is the sight and our permission to build. Now, a few verses later in Romans 6, Paul wrote that the wages of sin is death. That's verse 23. But thanks to Jesus, we dead people don't pay bills. The justification before God that Christ gave us frees us from slavery to sin. So those who have died with Christ are no longer answerable or obligated to their old master, sin. The believer is now free to live for God. He or she can still choose to sin, but the believer is no longer a slave to sin. So in these verses, we find that we value baptism by immersion, not because it's necessary for salvation, because it's not, but because it symbolically expresses the deepest meaning of our salvation. It not only symbolizes his death, but it symbolizes our deaths, death to the old self, death to slavery to sin. But it symbolizes more than that. It pictures new life. And as we move to verses 8 through 11, we'll find that the next step in the process Paul described is, well, that number two, a believer is fully alive in Christ. Look at verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ died once. We see that in verse 10. He was raised once, once and for all and forever. Christ defeated death, so it will never rule over him. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul is saying in verse 10. That Christ died to sin doesn't mean he was ever a sinner, or that he was somehow subject to sin's power because of his humanity. It means that he died with respect to sin, or more to the point, for sin. So, our perfect Savior didn't die in sin, but his death was definitely related to sin, specifically our sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took upon himself the consequences of our sin. But in contrast to Christ's once-for-all death to sin is his ongoing life to God, an example that he has set for us to follow, to live completely sold out to God. You see, our death with Christ, even though it was a decisive act in the past, it wasn't an end in itself. The journey doesn't stop there. It really starts there. Being united with Christ in his death means believers 
also have been united with him in life. And those are the facts. We died to sin. We live to righteousness, both now and also for all eternity. And because of that, sin's dominion over us has been shattered. Its penalty has been paid. It no longer has authority over our lives. Oh, but it wants to. Sin wants to entrap us, to be our master. It wants to find a foothold in our old way of thinking and living, and, and through that seeks to control us. You probably understand that desperate feeling you get when you believe you're trapped. You know, maybe when you get upside down on a car payment or house payment, meaning you, you, what you own is valued less than what you actually have to pay on it. You know, or maybe when you get caught in a speeding ticket, then you got no excuse. Or when you get caught with your proverbial hands in the cookie jar, meaning you were discovered doing something inappropriate or unethical. The truth is, there are all kinds of choices, behaviors, and thoughts that we allow to trap us today. Some are more destructive. I mean, there's things like substance abuse, pornography, there's worry, there's greed, there's lying, there's infidelity. But remember what Paul said, though. In Jesus Christ, we died to sin, and the old person was crucified so that the old life is rendered inoperative. But that raises an important question. If sin no longer has authority over us, why then do we still struggle with sin? Well, I think that's when we get into discussions about the sin nature. There's a debate among some theologians as to whether people who have been born again still have a sin nature. I mean, you've probably been told your whole life that even as a Christian, you still have a sin nature within you. And when you sin, you just naturally chalk it up to your sin nature. But here's something to think about. See, Paul said in verse 6 that our old self is crucified, rather, so we would no longer be slaves to sin. And he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 4, that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Well, given that the Holy Spirit dwells within you, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, is he going to be the sole proprietor that's setting up housekeeping in your temple? Or is he going to have a roommate, one holy, one unholy? Do you have two natures within you, both a sin nature and a new Christ nature? Well, you know, whether or not we still have a nature to sin probably just depends on how you define nature. Now, my personal view, for, for whatever it's worth, is that it's not your nature to sin any longer, but it is your habit. And the war between new self and old self exists because of what some Bible-based Christian counselors would call the doctrine of habituation. More on that in a sec. But in Ephesians 2, Paul wrote that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That's Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. So when your spirit was dead and you were controlled by sin, you were by nature in the habit of living a certain way. 
But by your faith in Jesus, God has now brought your spirit to life. But the problem is that you're still used to living according to your habitual patterns. So let me give you, see if I can give you an example of the, the doctrine of habituation. So before you were a Christian, if your standard way of dealing with criticism has been to lash out with an insulting tweet or a rant on Facebook, attacking somebody's character, well, then that's what you'll still be prone to do. It's habit. Or if you begin to cope with your boss berating you at work by getting drunk, guess what? If you don't tackle that problem head on at the source, then it's likely your tendency will be to use alcohol as a coping mechanism every time your boss belittles you. Ladies, if your usual coping mechanism for marital conflict is to self-medicate through that retail drug called shopping, well, guess what? You will still tend to do that. Men, if when you see a beautiful woman, it's been your habit to fantasize about her in your mind, well, that's what your mind will habitually continue to do. See, by not choosing to deal with the source of our problems and temptations in a Christ-like way, allowing the Holy Spirit to direct us, we can easily become ingrained in some ungodly behaviors. There are behavioral seeds that get planted in us early on in life that can still dominate us even after coming to Christ, if we let them. And those mindsets, those habits are hard to break out of. Yes, even for a Christian. Now, think of it this way. Years ago, when the western U.S. was being settled, roads were often just wagon tracks. And these rough trails posed serious problems for those who journeyed on them. Now, on one of these winding paths was a sign. And the sign posted said, avoid this rut or you'll be in it for the next 25 miles. Well, you see, when something becomes habitual, it becomes automatic. You just do it without thinking for the next 25 years. Well, that's the doctrine of habituation. Something that has become so deeply ingrained in you for so long that it's a struggle to break free. It's no longer your nature to sin, but it's still your habit to sin. And when you do sin, you feel foolish because that's not in keeping with your new nature. Now, again, this is just my viewpoint on the matter. It's not set in stone. So you can feel free to disagree with me on this matter. But here's the thing. Nature or not, it's still your choice to sin. It's nobody else's. You might recall uh, Flip Wilson's variety show back in the 1970s had a character named Geraldine. Geraldine blamed everything she did on the devil. The devil made me do it. The devil made me buy that dress. Folks, the devil can't make us do anything. Sin itself cannot make us do anything. We're dead to sin. And because we're alive in Christ, we no longer have to be trapped in this endless cycle of guilt and shame, of promising to do better only to fail again. We're free, free from the penalty of sin. So, in Christ, we are free from sin slavery. We are fully alive in him. And now, as we conclude with verses 12 through 14, we'll find an important challenge from the Apostle Paul. Yes, we're free from sin's penalty, 
But in order to be free from sin's power, well, here's number three. A believer is freely given to God. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of, of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. So, Paul wrote to offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. That's verse 13. As we daily offer ourselves to Christ, he not only works in us to overcome temptation, but he also continually works in us to heal, to change our desires. He makes us more like himself. Now, let's flesh that out just a little bit. How do we gain victory over sin? Well, first of all, by understanding that Christ has already won the ultimate victory. And you can read about that in Romans 7.25 and 1 Corinthians 15.57. But second, by understanding that we can expect to receive help when fighting sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul wrote, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. Now, what does that way of escape look like? Well, this is hardly going to be a comprehensive look at it, but from my perspective, there are at least three things that can help provide escape from sin. And here's how I describe the first one. It's the Lord desired by us. In other words, desiring God above all else. So don't offer yourselves to sin. Wholeheartedly offer yourselves to God. Psalm 37, 4, David said, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. He will give you. He will assign, appoint, implant your heart's desires. If he's your greatest desire, he's going to change your heart. Psalm 73, verse 25. This is one of the Psalms of Asaph. He said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Among all the treasures, temptations, and distractions the world has to offer, we must choose to make him our greatest treasure, our chief desire. That way we're able to offer ourselves to God, not to sin, as Paul said in verse 13. You see, when I choose to sin, it's because I've taken him off of the throne of my heart and I've put something else there in his place, something that I've decided is more important. And in that moment, he's no longer my greatest pleasure, the desire of my heart. Something sinful is. So we escape by the Lord being our greatest desire. Then, here's another way, by the word dwelling in us. All right, so true confession time. The times when I tend to fall right back into the ruts of my old sin patterns are, are those when I'm not practicing the spiritual disciplines like prayer time and 
but most particularly study of the word. Almost every single time I do something rebellious, shameful, boneheaded, returning to my folly like the dog does to his vomit, it's because I haven't been feeding myself from the scripture. Paul wrote in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So how do we renew our minds? Well, with the Bible. By putting a steady diet of the Word of God into our minds, letting it flow into our hearts, and pour out into our lives. Now, the psalmist understood the transforming power of Scripture. That's why in Psalm 119.11, he wrote, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So we don't just store it, but we treasure it. So sin can be escaped by God being desired by us, by the word dwelling in us, and by the Spirit living through us. You see, I believe our biggest ally in overcoming the power of sin is the Holy Spirit. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. In Romans 8, 26, Paul said, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You see, whether it's your nature to sin or your habit to sin really isn't even the point. Because regardless, the solution is the same. It's the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. So self-help schemes, motivational seminars, behavior modification, man, those aren't enough to produce lasting change in your life. The power of positive thinking isn't the key to transforming you into the person God wants you to be. Dianetics isn't going to unlock your inner power. Only the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you can affect lasting change in a person. God can and will do amazing things in you if you relinquish control to the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. And if you do, well, Paul said in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. You see, part of your salvation process is sanctification. It's being made more like Jesus by the Holy Spirit. You see, justification is being made right with God. So in his eyes, it's just as if I'd never sinned. In Christ, you are saved from the penalty of sin forever. But because of the Holy Spirit's control over your life, you can be saved daily from the power of sin in your personal life. And that's sanctification. If we want to escape sin, we make him our greatest desire. We inundate our hearts and minds with his word. And we yield control of our lives to the power of his Holy Spirit. Because you see... When I am freely given to God, sin is no longer my master. Jesus is, which is really the big idea behind today's study. The basic truth that Paul's teaching here 
is the believer's identification with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. You know, once upon a time, we were identified with Adam in sin and condemnation, but now we're identified with Christ in righteousness. Jesus not only died for our sins, but we died with him so that we might truly live in him. All right, so in light of those truths, how are we to live? What are some ways that we can put that truth to work this week? You know, what are some practical ways for us to live in Christ's victory over sin? Well, I think the first and most obvious step is, is this. Confess. Give your sin to Christ, no matter how small you consider it. Agree with God that it's sin. Acknowledge that Christ is your Lord and Master and, and choose to accept the victory in Him. Now, if you confess, then remove. Evaluate your life for habits and routines or relationships that pull you into sin. Take a spiritual selfie and then create a plan for avoiding temptation, for removing these things or, or limiting their power over you. And then finally, partner. Team up with another believer. Make yourselves accountable to one another. Support each other in saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. Make a practical plan to connect regularly. Now, folks, if you've trusted Christ for forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life, then as Paul says, you are in Christ. You are positionally righteous. But by the power of his Holy Spirit, you can also be practically righteous. Through your union with Christ, you no longer have to be dominated by sin. You now share in the resurrected life of Christ. But what about the rest of you listening who, who haven't trusted Christ? Well, Paul also wrote that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. You see, he makes all things new. And if you'll just come to him in repentance and faith, then you're his forever. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. I like what Shane Pruitt said. He said, the goal of the gospel is not to affirm you, celebrate you, and accept you the goal of the gospel is to rescue you, transform you, and redirect you. Wait, what? God doesn't receive me just as I am? Well, yes, but he doesn't leave you that way. Through the resurrection power of Jesus at work in your life, he transforms you. He helps, to, helps you to shed the shackles of your old life, and he turns you into a new you, one that looks like Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. 
You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.